take your Bibles and find Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So we begin our time of study of God's Word. I want you to use your imagination for a moment. Imagine that you are one of the early Christians that had been saved at Pentecost or shortly thereafter. Perhaps you heard Peter preach the good news that the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets had occurred, that his Christ had suffered, paid the penalty for sins, and so he called, repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away. And you did. You repented and you believed in Christ's resurrection from the dead and you were one of those first 5,000 in the church. After this shocking change of life, you're busy devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship that's taking place with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are hearing of regularly, perhaps even witnessing miracles performed by the apostles. There's just a sense of awe and wonder. It all was taking place as the word of God was transforming lives used by, of course, the spirit of God. But it's not all sunshine and rainbows, breaking of bread and miracles. While the church is growing rapidly in breadth and spiritual depth, there's serious opposition. So imagine you're sharing a meal with some friends from this early church discussing Peter's most recent sermon and you hear that he and John have been thrown in jail. What would you think? What do you think you would think about the work of the gospel, about the spread of the gospel, about the protection of the leaders of this early church and the apostles, or perhaps even your own personal safety, safety of your family, the safety of your fellow believers. Well, we see in Acts chapter four just how those early Christians responded. And more to the point for our study this morning, we see the very words of God that inspired such a response. Shortly after the release of Peter and John, some of the church gathered to hear their report. And after hearing their report, Acts 4, verses 23 and following, sort of re- it recounts the prayer that they offer as a group in response to what had taken place. Acts 4, 23, when they had been released, that is Peter and John, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, the group, this church, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ." For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. 
It's instructive for us to see how these early Christians amidst opposition drew theologically informed comfort from the scriptures. And in particular, Psalm 2. For this early group of believers, the truth proclaimed in this psalm was a reminder that all that had occurred in the rejection of Christ and all that was occurring in the rejection of Christ's apostles by these rulers and kings was a part of God's plan. And recognizing this, the early church prayed for God's care and that they would face such opposition faithfully and boldly. Psalm 2 heartened them with the truth that God's plan was in place, that Jesus Christ would reign, that he would subdue his enemies, and it should hearten us as well. Psalm 2 is about the reign of the Lord's Christ, and this promised reign is a source of hope for the reverent, but a message of horror for the rebellious. Hope for the reverent, and yet horror for the rebellious. Psalm 2 was written by David. We don't find that out from the psalm itself. We find that out from the passage I just read. Acts chapter 4 tells us that the early Christians who we quoted, I just quoted, attributed it to him. So it's rightly seen as a Davidic psalm. And I've already hinted that this psalm is ultimately about a victorious reign of Jesus Christ. But in the psalm, we don't see that identified as explicitly. Instead, we see teaching about the coming reign of the Lord's king. So we ask, which king? It's about David. Is it about Solomon? Is it about someone else after Solomon? Is it about Jesus? And so those questions is, yes, David was the Lord's king. David was an anointed one. He was charged and to mediate the Lord God's rule over his people Israel. The Lord established David. The Lord even made a covenant with David. But this psalm has a prophetic element. Its meaning and significance is moved beyond the experience of David as the Lord's anointed king, and they find ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that not because of our imaginations or creative interpretation, but because the scriptures tell us so. So we're reminded here at the outset, before we get into the psalm, that this connection between Jesus and David is not like a creative symbolic leap that we're making just to show some fancy moves with scripture. No, the Lord made a covenant with David in one of the most significant theological moments in our Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he promised him a forever kingdom, an established throne that would be occupied by one of his descendants. There's much in the Old Testament after that promise about this coming Davidic descendant. For example, you can look at Isaiah 9 and see a reference there. There's other places in the Psalms, other places in the prophets. And as the New Testament opens, we see Jesus' identity as the Davidic king, as the son of David, as this one promised. It, It resounds. Matthew's genealogy starts off by proclaiming that Jesus is the son of David. Matthew 1.1. Luke's account of Gabriel's birth announcement to Mary emphasizes Jesus' identity as a Davidic king, says that the Lord himself would give the throne of his father David to him, to Jesus. So we read the Gospels throughout Christ's ministry, we see that it's carried out with his Davidic identity in the foreground. He demonstrates his Davidic identity multiple times, but people crying out to him as the son of David, 
for example. Even at his death, all four Gospels, and there's irony here, but all four Gospels record how his regal identity is used by those who are putting him to death as a source of scorn. Then after his resurrection, the importance of his Davidic identity continues to be stressed. It's right there in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost. Much more could be said about the ways that the New Testament points to the manifestation and culmination of Christ's kingship. Read Revelation 19. Read 1 Corinthians 15. But that would take us beyond Psalm 2. But we're comfortable saying that Psalm 2 is ultimately about the Lord's ultimate king, the Lord Jesus. Before we read, I want you to know just a few observations about the structure and flow that I think will help us as we read to take in what the Lord intends from Psalm 2. First, we always need to know when we read the Psalms when parallelism is, is present and distinct. Parallelism is simply a feature of Hebrew poetry where there's parallel or repeating thoughts that are used to communicate one main idea or one concept. So, for example, if you look at verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart, let us cast away their cords from us. Throwing off fetters and cords, that's parallelism. We don't need to get caught in the interpretive weeds of trying to figure out the significance of how cords and fetters are different. That's one idea, all right, but parallelism. And that happens throughout the psalm. It's a distinct feature of this psalm. Second, throughout the psalm, there are really two groups that are identified, two sides of a battle. On one side, you have the Lord, that is Adonai, Yahweh, and his king, the son, and on the other side, you have rebellious humanity, denoted by the words nations, kings, rulers, judges, those who represent the nations, so two sides. Third, you'll note that as we make our way through the psalm, it's not always clear who the divine pronouns refer to. Is it the Lord God or is it the Lord God's king? And I'll comment on those as we look at the verses more closely, but I believe that the majority of these pronouns refer to the Lord God, not the king. It's the Lord who installs his king. It's the Lord who will give the nations to his king for conquering. It's the Lord who is to be worshiped. It is the Lord who will become angered if his son, the king, is not revered and followed. And we'll comment more about that when we get to those places. Fourth, and we've already sung about king and kingship this morning, but we need to be reminded, king is not an abstract idea when we're talking about the Messiah. It's not just another name, another lofty designation that we give Jesus because we want to lift him as high as we possibly can, right? Creator and almighty, and so we just throw king in there, like, why not? Add it on, right? Anything that communicates supremacy and authority, He's not simply the king because he's God, the son. He's king because, as we're going to see here and as we see in other places, God has designated him as king. The resurrected God-man who is given a place as king and has been given a kingdom and that kingdom will be manifest. It's not an abstract idea. It's not figurative. Jesus Christ is really a king. Now, we don't have kings So it's hard for us. We don't live in a day where kings are just a part of life, right? When the psalmist wrote about this, number one, as a king, he understood what was going on here, but the people understood. They had kings, and the nations all around them had kings, but we don't. And so we need to set our minds to understand this is a real kingdom. This is real kingship. Again, it's not just some abstract concept. 
Lastly, I want you to note the ways that the lines of the psalm can be organized around speaking or declarations. First, in verse 3, representatives of rebellious mankind speak. And in verse 6, the Lord God speaks. Then in verse 7, the king speaks. And then he quotes the Lord God speaking, verses 7 through 9. And then as we come to verses 10 through 12, what rounds out the psalm, the psalmist speaks, takes the position of instructor, and he speaks. And so the psalm is focused on the victorious reign of the Lord's king over and against the rebellious nations of the earth. And it breaks down into really four sections fairly cleanly, each with a declaration that moves the message forward. And from these declarations, the Lord's people, those who know the king, draw comfort And those who don't are confronted with news that should make them want to turn. These four declarations will serve as our outline as we look at four declarations that comfort the reverent and confront the rebellious. Four declarations that comfort the reverent and confront the rebellious. Let's read Psalm 2 together, beginning in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 confidently proclaims that God will eventually put down all rebellion through his chosen king. The sinful raging of the nations is nothing to fear. For as this psalm puts it, the Lord's power is intact. It's not impaired. His threats are not in vain. So the message of Psalm 2 is at the same time hope for the believer, but it's, a, it's ultimately a horrific message for those who don't believe it, for those who persist in unbelief. For believers, this informs and reminds us of God's sure purposes It engenders our trust and our confidence in the Lord in the midst of tumult all around us as the nation's rage. There's great comfort for the Lord's people when we read teaching like this and the hoped for, and we see the hope for success of God's plan of rule through his anointed king. But for unbelievers, for those who who have not bowed the knee to Christ, it's an instructive warning It warns against provoking God's anger. It threatens all who would throw off God's authority or cast it aside. 
There's a confrontation of the Lord's enemies with the horrific news of their impending destruction. And the psalm ends with a call to them to repent and to show reverence. So we're going to organize our look at this psalm around four declarations that comfort the reverent and confront the rebellious. And the first section of the psalm, really this first three verses, give us our first declaration. That is a declaration that expresses insurrection. I might need a little help, Jack. There we go. Thank you. So verses 1 through 3 portray the foolish rebellion of the nations. And that begins with the psalmist's rhetorical questions. And then it culminates in their declaration of their insurrection. So we have nations, peoples, kings, rulers in verses 1 and 2. And they all refer to the same group. Rebellious humanity united against the Lord and against the Lord's king in insurrection. The rhetorical questions from David set the tone of the psalm. They, they implicitly uh, express the futility of the plans of the nations. So the ultimate ridiculousness of their plan is going to unfold as we make our way through the psalm. But David hints at it just in the way he starts the psalm. When he asks the rhetorical questions, why are the nations up or why are the peoples devising a vain thing, a futile thing, a worthless thing? David's question implies what they're doing won't succeed. It's like asking a toddler, why are you trying to push that semi up a hill? You're not actually expecting a response. You're implying something, right? That's what's going on here. Why are you planning something so worthless? Now, they, of course, don't know the vanity, the futility of their plan, and that's why they'll be horrified with the words that are coming later in the psalm, and they'll be terrified. But at this point, David makes clear their futility and shows this insurrection, this portrait of mankind against Almighty God. The end of verse 2 draws the battle lines that run through the rest of this psalm. Rebellious humanity is aligned against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed is the term that most of you probably know we get our words for Messiah or Christ from. Sometimes it's used in Scripture to refer to God's appointed kings. David was an anointed one. Sometimes it's even used to refer to those that God chooses to use, like when he calls Cyrus his anointed in Isaiah. But in the context of this psalm, it's obvious that the term refers to the king of Israel and ultimately, as we'll see to King Jesus, as verse 6 and following make clear. So the insurrection of mankind then is what's portrayed here, and that's given voice in their declaration in verse 3. Those aligned against the Lord together declare their desire for absolute autonomy. Let us tear their fetters apart. That is the Lord and his anointed. That's the there. Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords for us. The fetters and cords illustrate the rule, the restraint of God and his chosen king. God and his king's authority, the restraint that comes from living in submission to that authority. And their declaration of one of absolute rejection. They desire autonomy. The authority that's mediated through God's chosen king is rejected. They're against that. Mankind is against that, wants nothing to do with it. Autonomy is the goal. We read these terms, you may be thinking about things going on in our day today. I 
don't have to belabor the obvious with headlines. Insurrection against the Lord and his anointed is everywhere. Pastor Rick gave us a pretty good example of that last week as he introduced our series on marriage, talking about humanity's desire for autonomy when it comes to God's design for the sexes. Psalm 2 corrects us if we think that mankind's rebellion, mankind's hatred of God and his anointed is overstated. There are only two sides of the fight. There's no third way. There's no nuance in the discussion in Psalm 2. There's rebels, and there's the Lord and his Christ. That's it. Insurrection, or as we'll see, submission. We're reminded that those who have not bowed the knee to Christ are not merely sort of neutral in a weak, broken, and helpless state. That all peoples everywhere, as Romans 1 tells us, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and as a result of that, reject God's authority seeking autonomy. And a sobering reminder comes from these first three words, and that is that the opposition to the Lord and the Lord's king, that extends to the Lord's people. Remember Christ's words, you will be hated by all because of my name, Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all nations because of my name, Matthew 24, 9. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you, 1 John. 313. It's important for us to remember opposition is not a surprise to the Lord. When we as people face opposition, it's not as if the Lord has lost sight of his promises or his plans or purposes. As those in Acts 4 said, this is what the Lord has set his hand to bring about. And as we who have bowed the knee to Christ experience opposition, we should remember that they first have hated the Lord and his Christ. And that's evidence that we stand with the Lord and his Christ against the hatred and the opposition that they have for him. It's easy to see how these first three lines confront the rebellious, right? David makes clear, it's vain. It's vain to align yourself against the Lord and his king. But there is comfort here in remembering that what the enemies of God plan against him and his king, what they plan is vain. We can take the perspective of the psalmist and ask rhetorically, why are you devising such vanity? That term for devising is the same term that in Psalm 1 is translated meditating, where there we see the godly meditating on God's word. And in Psalm 2, we see the wicked, devising, setting their minds against the Lord and his Christ. So these first three lines teach us not to be surprised by opposition. But then the rest of the psalm teaches us not to have our faith upset by such opposition. The Lord responds to this insurrection in verses four through six, and he exposes the senselessness of the rebels' plans. Listen to verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The Lord's response provides our second declaration, which is a declaration that exposes the irrational. 
The Lord's declaration exposes how irrational it is for these nations to align themselves against he and his king. So there's a shift in the scene from earth to heaven between verses 1 through 3 and 4. And the Lord is pictured enthroned in the heavens above the earth. It's an intentional contrast between the kings of the earth and where he is, which is above the insurrection in every conceivable way. His attitude toward the raging nations is it's one of derision. He's mocking his enemies. He's ridiculing his enemies. And by portraying the Lord in this way, the psalmist is seeking to expose just how irrational it is to plot and plan against the Lord and his anointed. Think of displays of military might. Probably for most of us, that's something that we've watched in a documentary. But you imagine the the tanks and the armaments going down the main corridor of a major city and thousands of soldiers marching and a leader of that nation sort of perched up high looking approvingly at the military below in this show of force and this show of might. And this psalm pictures God infinitely above that perch, laughing, mocking. He has scorn for the plans of those who desire to throw off the rule of his son. But though irrational and deserving of mockery, notice God does not simply like dismiss their opposition. He doesn't dismiss it or look the other way in derision. He deals with it. He does not ignore the rebellion. Verse 5 tells us that he's angry. And that an angry message is coming that will terrify, will horrify his enemies. And here's that message. I myself have installed my king. His message of of wrath toward those who oppose him is me, I myself. But as for me, you're doing this, but I've installed my king. Those are the words that are terrifying them that come with his fury. My king here is the anointed from verse two, the son from verse seven and verse 12. Says that he has been installed upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion is God's place, special place amongst his people. Jerusalem is referred to as Zion in the Old Testament. Its significance was and is tied to him. It's not significant in and of itself. It's significant because God has said it's significant. Zion is the place he designated as a special place of service and worship. And while we know that now, John 4, we worship in spirit and truth and our worship of God is not localized there, Zion is still significant. Isaiah 2 tells us that that is the place from which the King, the Lord Jesus, will reign over the nations on a future day. God says that I've installed my King in my place. So this second declaration, the declaration of him installing his king comes after he scorns, he he has scorned for, he mocks the irrational foolishness of humanity. And he said, don't, aligning against me is futile. It's God picturing, look, you, you plan, you take your stand, but please, I've installed my king. And those are the words that terrify. Now, verses seven through nine then expand on the installation of the Lord's king and make clear why ultimately the plans of the nations against him are futile. 
So again, verse 7, now the king is speaking. The king says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So now the king is quoting the Lord God. What does the Lord God say? He said to me, verse 7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. The Lord's words to his king provide our third declaration. And that is a declaration that exalts the invincible. A declaration that exalts the invincible. In verse 7, the exalted position of the king is given emphasis by the Lord's words. First, we see that he's designated as my son. Now, that's not just the psalmist by the inspiration of the Spirit writing something that he didn't understand, and we say, of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is God's son. There's more going on there than that. In, David's, in God's covenant with David, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, God said of the coming reigning descendant, the one who would be on David's throne, he said this, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. The kings of Israel as God's designated mediating rulers were sons to the Lord. But of course, we'd say it points beyond that as well because that promise to David is an everlasting covenant, an everlasting king and an everlasting kingdom. And we see, as we'll note in just a minute, the New Testament picks this up and tells us that this applies to Jesus Christ. Now, the next line in parallel communicates the same idea. First, he says, you are my son. Then he says, today I have begotten you. This is not anything about eternal generation for those theological nerds in the room. This is about the son's exaltation to his position as king. Today, I have begotten you. It's a reference to the time of the exaltation and his position as king. How do we know that? Because one, Hebrews 1.5 quotes this verse to demonstrate the exaltation of Christ. And Paul quotes this in Acts 13.33 to show that the resurrection was the today of this verse. The resurrection by which, as Paul says in Romans 1.4, he, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God with power. This is a powerful reminder of the significance of the resurrected Christ and God's plans for the ages. Again, Christ's role as son, Christ's role as king, they're not arbitrary titles and designations. God's plan for the ages includes a king. And he's shown us who that king is and he's exalted him to the position of exalted ruler in the resurrection. And by divine appointment, as these verses are going along to show, the king will rule and will manifest that rule on the earth. So the father-son figure of speech here refers to this special relationship between the Lord and his anointed king. And after asserting that relationship, after asserting that exaltation of the Lord, exalting his king... Verses 8 and 9 reveal that as a result of that exaltation, the king will have invincible dominion. The Lord will give to his king invincible dominion without limits. 
I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The nations of verse 1. I will, the very ends of the earth will be your possession. There will be no limit to the kingdom. It will be as expansive as the ends of the earth. So the Lord has exalted his king and will give him a worldwide kingdom and he will exercise worldwide invincible dominion. His rule is described in verse nine. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Them refers to the nations, which points to the peoples, the kings, the rulers in verses one and two. Remember, they wanna throw off his authority. They're aligned. They've taken their stand against the Lord and against his king. But here we find ultimately that the Lord's king will subdue them. He will subdue them. The rod of iron refers to the king's scepter. It's simply a designation of his authority, of his rule, of his power. And the second part of verse 9 makes clear that their insurrection, the insurrection of the raging nations will be put down by forces necessary as his enemies are broken as simply as fragile pottery. As simple as it would be to take a clay pot and break it on the ground, the Lord will break those who stand against him in rebellion. He's invincible. Insurrection will be put down. This is the result of the Lord exalting his king. And for those, for those who know the king, there's, there should be all sorts of encouragements happening in our heart. We're assured of victory because of his victory. There's hope here. There's confidence in the unfolding of the Lord's plans. There's comfort. It won't always be the way it is now. The Lord will have his reign. There will be vindication. As a result of that, we can take courage. There will be relief given to those who know the king and bow the knee to the king as enemies are vanquished. In Revelation 2, Jesus promises that those who endure now will reign with him in his kingdom. And you know how he assures of that promise? By quoting Psalm 2. Christ's victorious reign is the basis for the hope for victory that we look forward to. And in that, we should take courage. Listen to stanza from Luther's a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. The Lord's king will be victorious. He will vanquish his foes. And his subjects, his loyal subjects, will reign with him. And in that, we should take courage. Now, at this point in the psalm, where we are, the enemies have been met with, with nothing but the shocking news of their impending doom, their defeat, the invincible reign of the Lord's king that they're aligned against. But the psalm ends with this grace-filled plea. And in the, the fourth and final section, which is, comes in verses 10 through 12, the psalmist turns his attention to the rebels of verses 1 through 2, and he exhorts them in light of all the declarations of the Lord and the Lord's King in the preceding verses. And these verses provide our fourth and final declaration, which is a declaration that exhorts the irreverent. Number four is a declaration that exhorts the irreverent. 
Listen to verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalmist now takes the position of an instructor or an exhorter. And his exhortation is simply this, do what is wise, submit to the Lord's king. That's it in summary. In verse 10, the kings and the judges are the thems and the nations of verses 8 and 9, the them of verses 4 and 5, the nations, people, kings, and rulers of verses 1 through 3. In other words, his enemies. Psalmist says, take heed, be wise, show understanding. Then they are given five commands. So in the NASB, these five commands read like this. Show discernment, take warning, worship, rejoice, do homage. And the first two commands are really calls to heed the second three. So again, taken together, all these commands, the lesson is this, the wise submit to and revere the Lord God by honoring his king. The wise submit to, they revere, they show reverence and homage to the Lord God when they show homage to the Lord's king. What do the foolish nations need more than anything? Wisdom and understanding. What does wisdom and understanding in this context look like? What would constitute repentance? Verse 11, fearful reverential service to the Lord. Verse 10, or verse 12, homage and honor to the Lord's King. Your version of verse 12 may say, kiss the sun, which was a display of homage to a ruling authority. Maybe a conquered foe But this is not simply an external symbol. This is not playing politics in ancient Near East. This is a kiss. This is homage that reflects true reverential humility in the heart. The picture here is one submitting to the rulership of the Lord's king. Consider the contrast here between what you've seen in the first section of the psalm and then the force required by the Lord to bring down, to crush the insurrection in his invincible rule with what we see here, which is a call to submit. You have on one hand the irreverent, devising, scheming, raging of the nations, and on the other hand you have this reverential submission. The call in these verses, the wisdom, is absolute allegiance to the king. And that allegiance brings forth salvation. That's what the last line of the psalm makes clear. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are those who find security and shelter in the Lord. No longer enemies. So the reason for the psalmist's warnings, we see this at the end of verse 12. All the preceding verses, all the warnings, verses 10 and 11, the calls to wisdom are urgent. And why? Why is submitting to the son, why is submitting to this king such an urgent matter? Well, because if you don't, the Lord will be angry. 
and those who persist along their rebellious course of life will perish. That's what verse 12 teaches us. Now, I mentioned in our introduction that sometimes the divine pronouns here are hard to follow. I believe that the he and the his and the him in the verse 12 are referring to the Lord God, not the king. The effect of that on our understanding of these verses is simply this. You, you avert the Lord's wrath by worshiping his appointed king. The Lord will be angry and his wrath will be poured out on, the, on rebels who reject the king. But he provides refuge and safety for all who seek it by submitting to his king. And if you're all tied up in knots, wondering about the he's and the hymns, at the end of the day, to worship the Lord's king is to worship the Lord. So whether the king is angry or the Lord God is angry, either way we're dealing with ultimately the same God. Submit to the son. Worship the son as a show of submission and worship to the Lord God. Again, I mentioned a minute ago the salvation portrayed in the last line of verse 12, and it's really somewhat shocking. I mean, the whole psalm up to this point has basically said all the negative things that are going to happen to those who don't bow the knee to Christ, and yet now there's this gracious offer, there's this wonderful promise of blessing for those who take refuge in the Lord. The implication for us from the psalmist's exhortation of wisdom is plain, isn't it? Have you submitted to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you shown homage to the Son? Have you submitted to the Lord by yielding your life to the authority of his king. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that he came a first time and was offered once to bear sin, that he's been resurrected, exalted, and he's returning to conquer. And for the irreverent and rebellious, this psalm holds forth a terrifying expectation of judgment. But for those who wisely choose to submit, there's the blessed news that he will appear a second time for salvation. There is refuge, there is shelter for those who seek the Lord. I've been helped many times just thinking through the way we apply dense theology or the unfolding of the Lord's plan and the teaching in the scriptures to our own hearts by D.A. Carson's paradigm of theology as preventative medicine for the soul. Essentially, Carson helps us see that things aren't always as bad as they can be. We may experience things in the future that the scriptures prepare us for that we're not experiencing currently. And then when we learn theology, when we study the scriptures, it's not simply so that we can fill a library in our minds with books on the shelves that just gather dust, but it's so that we're prepared to put into practice, to employ the truths that we've learned so that when we do experience something like opposition or persecution as the early church experienced, that we're prepared with theology. We've taken preventative medicine when we're confronted with things that may shake our faith or induce anxiety, that we remember the truth of God's word. In this case, that we remember that he has installed his king that he will be victorious. 
that all who worship him will be given shelter and refuge, that those who are Christ will reign with him for all eternity. None of us has been arrested that I'm aware of for preaching the truth or is enduring the most blatant forms of persecution. I wouldn't submit that we're close to experiencing yet what Peter and John did in the early days of the church that we read earlier. But the nations are raging. Fallen humanity continues to take its stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And as we read earlier, we should expect opposition. While humanity seeks autonomy, shaking a fist in God's face, we should expect that fist to be shaken in ours as well. And again, these things can be unsettling. But like the faithful in those early days of the church, we can draw hopeful comfort from the news that the Lord's plans are intact, that he has set his king in the exalted position, that he has promised him victory. And we know that he will have the victory when he returns. Carson says this, in addition to holding that Christian beliefs are true and consistent, the Christian to find comfort in them must learn how to use them. Christian beliefs are not to be stacked in the warehouse of the mind. They're to be handled and applied to the challenges of life and discipleship. Otherwise, they are incapable of bringing comfort and stability, godliness and courage, humility and joy, holiness and faith. The realities of Christ's kingship, the realities of his future victorious reign should be employed by us for comfort, for encouragement, and for preparation as we seek to endure the world around us, looking forward to win his reign and victory will be made manifest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, these words of hope, these words of confidence, these words of the exaltation of your anointed son, the king. Help us to use them to bolster our faith, to have confidence in you and your plans, and to continue yielding our hearts in reverence to your authority and the authority of the King you've set over us, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.